Hey, it's Citizen Cosmos with Sergeant Anna and we discover Cosmos by chatting with awesome people from various teams and communities. Join us if you are curious how dreams and ambitions become code. So, hey everyone, today we chat with uh, Billy Rennekamp. He's the grants manager at ICF, the Interchain Foundation. He's the founder of Clovis Network and just a very cool guy. So, hey Billy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. How are you today? Hi. Thanks very much for having me. I'm doing well. How is uh, the situation where we are with Corona? This is our like start, chit-chat start. <laughs> yeah, of course. It begins every conversation in the last four months. <laughs> it's it's not bad. It could be worse. I think the numbers in Germany, I, I keep feeling different perspectives about whether we're doing well or not. But I feel like we have a pretty high capacity for normalcy right now. A lot of people wearing masks, which is good, but definitely seeing people, you know, going out and things like that. I feel like there was a shift at some point where I started sort of like trying to gauge danger by how much circulating air there was rather than sort of just like an absolute don't go anywhere near another human being sort of thing. So like feeling a lot better about being outside with high circulating air and being like, oh, it's okay. We can have like a, a bit of a summer. Just uh, if you go inside of like uh, closed doors, make sure you wear a mask basically. We just actually came from Berlin, so you know we really loved it. It was, and I think we're going to go back, but don't tell anyone. It's not like everybody's listening to this. So, <laughs> so uh, let's start with with some questions. And the first question, they will be a bit mixed, so don't don't worry about it. But our first question is about the ICF, and we had Ethan on the show before, and he clearly made the distinction between Tendermint and Cosmos for our listeners. But the ICF itself isn't the most mentioned vehicle, especially outside of the developers community and the validator community. So could you further describe your what is the ICF for the listeners and what is it you do at the ICF in your own words? And, and sorry, just to add to that, just to add to that, what is the role uh, of the ICF for the average user in the whole of the Cosmos ecosystem? Sure. So yeah, I think that you know a lot of the efforts around, let's say, the Cosmos network or Tendermint have been around in some ways much longer than the ICF itself. All in Bits, which is doing business as Tendermint Inc., has been around since around 2015 or so. And the ICF was made in 2017 to really facilitate the fundraiser. And it's a Swiss Stiftung. It's a nonprofit, basically. And it holds, you know, a treasury, which was a result of the fundraiser. It holds uh, originally 10% of the original total allocation of atoms. The fundraiser was done in Bitcoin and Ether. So it has reserves in, in those currencies, as well as uh, fiat in um, USD and Swiss francs, I think. <laughs> There's a financial transparency report coming out this month, and you can verify all that or, or get the actual details, but that's about what it consists of. And um, it's a, at its core, it's a funding vehicle. It's a way to you know, fund this really large and ambitious vision, which is this Internet of Blockchain, Internet of Blockchains. And uh, it's, a, it's quite a, like a, a long-term project, you know, and so it's good to have you know, sort of this treasury that's on standby to sort of make sure that the, the different development teams who are contributing to this have a source of income until, you know, a point in the future in which some of this technology starts turning around and maybe generating a more sustainable ongoing platform for, for money. So yeah, while its, its core function is, is as a funding vehicle, it's been used or not used in, in many different ways. You know, a lot of the activity 
around the development has taken place primarily within All In Bits and Tournament Inc. There, you know, since in some time last year, you started seeing a lot of more activity coming from the ICF itself. That's when Ethan and Ariane started doing a lot of operations there and moved a lot of the research and development into the ICF itself. Of course, that that group of engineers and researchers, you know, they've recently spun out into to a new organization uh, called Informal Systems, which is really exciting. And and since then, you know, there was almost like a, a spin out, spin in. There was this new group called the Interchain GmbH, which is a lot of the engineers from All in Bits who are working on Tendermint and IBC, who have joined as this sort of middle organization, the Interchain GmbH, where it's a fully owned subsidiary of the ICF. And I really am positioned uniquely between those two orgs because I'm, I'm the only one who technically works for both the ICF and the Interchain GmbH. Although again, the, the GmbH is a fully owned subsidiary. So in some ways, everybody at the GmbH is part of the ICF as well. That's a good explanation, I think. It kind of has everything in it. Would you say that you were the front office or, or the back office of Tendermint uh, Inc? Is that like a good enough question? I don't know. <laughs> Does it make sense? Um, I'm actually not sure what that what that means. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a good answer. What I meant essentially is like a lot of the accountants work usually is described as the back office where the front office is like the face of the company, the people who like, are seen all the time and they're, they're kind of what you can feel and touch. So I would imagine the ICF is like kind of the back office, right? Totally, totally. I mean, in some ways, I think... At least in the last year or two, you know, when let's say the mostly informal people were still part of the ICF, the ICF also did have a bit of a like front office capacity, I think, in the academic world and research, you know, so they were doing a lot more of that kind of work and journals, conferences for academic purposes, you know, interfacing with a lot of schools, PhD programs, and, you know, a big part of their their employee group now is researchers from that, PhDs and, and people working really in academics. So I think it, depending on where you're approaching, the, say, the Cosmos ecosystem from, the ICF has been a, a front office in those ways. But you're right, uh, as a funding vehicle, you know, it's really, it's the back office. It's taking care of making sure that there's a cash flow and people are getting paid and that there's a budget for the, the year and that we know where money's going or where it's coming from. It's interesting. I didn't, I wasn't aware of the academical part of that. So it's something new, definitely. Would you say that, I mean, looking at your like bio and looking around you or information around you on the internet, you know, the internet is evil, has a lot of information about you. I would describe you, especially pre-corona times as a public person, somebody who likes to give a lot of speeches and so on and so forth. Would you say that the ICF kind of requires a more more concentration on the paperwork or is it kind of go out there and get the projects and find them and fund them kind of thing? How would you describe it? The ICF is a pretty small group to just put that out there to begin with. You know, it, it's, uh, it's the Foundation Council, which at this point is five people. Last month, even, it was only three people. And then it's the Board of Management, which last month was three people and this month is two people. Uh, and then there's one other employee. So that's like... At a maximum, really, it's it's eight people, really, uh, which is very very small, uh, especially compared to some of the other foundations, you know, which have thirty, forty people, really like uh, fully operational capacities. And and then there's also Interchain GmbH. You know, this is a group of maybe ten to fifteen people. And so, when you're such small sort of groups, you're wearing a lot of different hats at the same time. I would say that 
in these roles, I definitely have like a public facing hat. I also have sort of a back office hat. There's also sort of this middle hat, I would say, which is that I feel like I'm seeing a lot of people all day long. You know, since since probably March, I'm on like an average of five hours of video calls a day. And um, especially this year, the ICF has, you know, started working a lot closer with a bunch of different organizations who are contributing to core technology. You know, it's no longer just all in bits. There's Informal, as we mentioned, and Interchange GmbH, but there's also Region Network. Agoric has been very active for a very long time. There's obviously Looney, who's been the sort of flagship wallet for a long time. But then there's Confio, you know, working on Cosmwasm. And there's Chainsafe, who's taken a much more active role in different areas. There's Althea Network, who's working on Peggy, as well as Swish Labs working on Peggy. You know, there's a lot of projects that, that are really contributing to the core of, of the infrastructure. And I, I have to talk to all of them all the time. <laughs> I mean, we all talk to all of each other uh, all the time, but there's, there's also, you know, just a much more coordination that's taking place than previously. And, and then as part of the, the grants program, you know, we've done a really big revamp to, to get the grants program running a lot more efficiently, uh, started doing a much more concrete quarter cycle. You know, the, the first part of this year was really putting that program, like the final touches on the sort of new design of that program, and then testing it out for the first cycle. And the first cycle just ended, you know, a week ago, we finalized the last things yesterday. And so that's been really exciting. But that also includes, you know, so many video calls, which is which is great, you know, because some of the most interesting things for me is, is actually that I, I feel like um, I have a really short attention span, you know, like, I want to be involved in all the things all the time. I like, I know just enough of everything to feel like I really get why things are exciting. And that's really dangerous because it means that I want to get involved in every single thing, which is great from my new position because, you know, I don't have enough time to build Peggy myself, but I get to like check in with the Peggy team and be like, oh, cool, that has that feature now. Great. Let me try it out. And then I get to, you know, play with it inside my machine or, um, you know, Ethermint. You know, I'm coming from Solidity as a developer. And so I'm really excited about the sort of capabilities that are there and, and testing out their frameworks and seeing like what's different and what's new. And it's it's a uh, it's been great for me to get access to all that stuff. But in that way, you know, I do feel like I'm being public because I'm talking to all these teams. Obviously, these aren't public facing calls, but you know, it, it feels like I'm reaching out to so many different people that at some point I've I've had private meetings with the entire population or something like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Anyways, it does because I'm in my work always fluctuating as well. It looks like you're mastermind a little bit of everything and in the process of communication between people. Uh, so do you personally think that communication is the one of the significant parts of work within the decentralized project and with the not that big company and vehicle, let's put it that way? So how do you feel about that part? I mean, I think communication is one of the most important, let's say, you know, tools that humans have in no matter what sort of capacity, traditional business, decentralized business, you know, open source, whatever. It's like if you can uh, effectively communicate with the people you're working with, you know, that's going to have compounding effects. I think that like at our at its core, you know, humans being effective, it really comes from being able to collaborate well and being able to collaborate well comes from being able to communicate well. Yeah. How do you discover it? Is it that something that you always know that is the core thing or you discover it during your work that it's okay, but now it's the 
X-factor of success, how it happened? I don't know. I, I have a lot of siblings, maybe. Uh, my whole family loves to talk. They're all really good communicators. My, my dad is a, a horse trainer. He's kind of like a horse whisperer. And so he's really good with like dogs and animals. And I feel like my whole family has like a real sort of appreciation for communication at many levels. You know, like communicating with people is, is like building empathy, you know, whether it's through language or body language and being able to work with animals is, is you're like, you're not able to use words. And so you really have to think of other ways to like empathize with the person you're, the, the animal that you're communicating with. And so I think communication is definitely like emphasized in my family and my upbringing. Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, it's cool actually, because I'm very close to horses, but uh, for business, Firstly, I think that hard skills, it's something super important, yeah, you know, and communication, it's something, okay, but you can communicate or you just have to do your work and why you need to spread your knowledge around the team and why we need all this stuff. And then once I just discover that, oh, it's one of the most important things <laughs> among the team. Oh, it's cool that someone just know it by its nature, yeah, from the family as Uh, in your example. <laughs> I'll let you in on a secret. You just broke Anna's heart there because she's a horse person so and a dog person. So, you know, and she's semi-like on it. So, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have a strange question for you. How did you decide to join the SCF? Because, I mean, how does one combine art and grants? I mean, obviously, you're an artistic person and I have other questions related to that a bit later on. But how did that come together? Where is the connection? I guess that began with like my involvement in the blockchain space at all. So I studied film and art. I've been working in Berlin for, for many years as, as an artist and making you know exhibitions, the studio practice. A lot of the work is informed by technology. I sort of like in parallel was, was you know working from time to time in a freelance capacity doing mostly web development just to sort of keep the lights on. But my, my lifestyle was very much about minimizing the amount of, let's say, like cash work that I was doing and maximizing the amount of uh, sort of artwork. For a while, I'd been working around concepts related to like play, games, and systems, and the way that the sort of rules within those contexts relate to the rules and technology and, and sort of what's possible when you start looking at technology as, as like games or, or trying to embrace the play aspects of them. And And in the middle of all of that sort of came together this, this concept for uh, this game Clovers, which had been sort of present for almost 10 years probably in my practice, but didn't really turn into explicitly a game until rather recently. And, and it was very much like an incentive game. So it was like, um, how could I convince a bunch of strangers to interact with this system, even if they don't care about art or if they don't care about games even, like how could I just you know, coordinate these people? Where, where could I align incentives to convince them to do this? To like, you know, place the carrot correctly. And that's so much about like mechanism design in cryptocurrencies. And uh, I first looked into sort of making it into a cryptocurrency project back in probably 2013 or so. It was around the time of uh, Bitcoin colored coins. And it just felt too early. Like the technology was too nascent. There was no way to really I didn't feel like I would be capable at, at building a tool that really used this stuff. And so I kind of put it on a shelf until around 2017. And I encountered my first like a uh, Solidity Hello World contract or something like that. 
and was kind of like, oh, like this is something I can work with. It coincided with a knee injury, actually, where I ended up like having to basically sit in my kitchen for like a month and a half and not, you know, move at all, which works really well when you're trying to like onboard a new skill. So I just did a sort of deep dive into Solidity and Ethereum, blockchain in general. Uh, I came in contact with Cosmos for the first time around then. And yeah, my, my goal was to build this artwork as like a game and then start sort of trying to get familiar with the community around the blockchain space to find collaborators, to inform the design and progress the development of it. In that process, I sort of got nerd sniped by Cosmos <laughs> and, and really the, the technology itself. You know, like I came at it for this very specific need or like purpose, you know, to, to build out this game, but there were so many interesting concepts and so much sort of richness in the the technology itself that I started getting much more excited about these these uh, larger ideas than my specific use case of those ideas. But Clover's was always this really amazing lens for those ideas too. So there's like automated market makers, there's non-fungible tokens, there's sort of general token economics, there's efficiencies on gas usage, there's like uh, different tricks and tools to offload computation, there's scaling efforts and all of this sort of, I experienced first through Clovers and realized that it had all these other applications and, and there were all these other interesting people who were thinking about it in different ways and I got really excited about communicating and, and collaborating in those, those efforts. Paralleled all of that is sort of a, an involvement with many projects and one of them being Cosmos. Uh, I began as a front-end developer actually on Looney. I was on Fabian's team with Pong and then I had an art residency in New York uh, to, to work on Clovers, and so uh, I wouldn't be able to dedicate the same amount of development time, which was kind of required for the front-end team. And so uh, I shifted into developer relations with the sort of idea that somebody coming from Ethereum would be able to communicate well with you know, uh, other people coming from Ethereum and thinking about scaling efforts with Cosmos. And, um, and so I started doing that more and more and, uh, and then just sort of, I was always half time, I think, with Tendermint. And then I think last August or so, I switched to full time. And then this year, you know, when it was sort of like, what's the best way for us to be most effective? And we decided to make the GmbH. I was sort of on board to do that. And then Bucky asked me if I would be interested in sort of uh, helping run the, the ICF. And I could see that there was sort of a need for it, especially as Informal was leaving. And as the ICF was becoming more important and coordinating all these different entities, it was kind of like, okay, somebody needs to step up and do this. <laughs> I feel like I had good enough relationships with everybody in the ecosystem, and I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of all the moving pieces. So it also sort of made sense to me why I might be good at doing that in that, that sort of role. So I, I put on that hat as well. Obviously, uh, sorry, you mentioned there that it's uh, Ethereum, and I know I've seen around, I'm not sure if I've seen any repos, but I've definitely seen around your Twitter the mentions of Aragon and Gnosis. So, care to share what you committed to them, or if it's open, of course? Totally, yeah. Um, so that's with relation to work that I was doing, I guess, God, my timelines seem weird, either in 2018 or 2019, maybe it was 2018, with Gnosis, I was helping a bit around uh, while they were building the DX DAO. So I'd been doing a lot of this sort of bonding curve work, especially through Clovers, and had been always really close with the team at Aragon Black. 
because they were doing so much sort of bonding curve work and they were the ones who were working on the continuous organization for Aragon DAOs. So that's basically a DAO that has a bonding curve. People would be able to say buy or sell into this and the tokens that they receive would give them some sort of like shareholder rights within like that DAO as a company. The money that was locked up in collateral and that bonding token might be possible to use as like for operating costs, you know, so it's a bit closer to what a normal investment company vehicle would be like, except for that it has an automated market maker for it. So it's like, no matter how small your company is, it's like you could have a liquid stock that people could buy and sell. And then, you know, that might help the operations. So I helped on some of the design with that, as well as some of the solidity implementation. And then Gnosis was interested in doing something similar for their DXDAO, uh, which is, is you know, they, they helped build, but is operated independently of Gnosis. And so I joined there, and the first sort of thing I wanted to work on was ways to prevent front-running. So they funded a lot of the, the research and um, proof-of-concept building that I did around batched bonding curves. So this is like a, a way to batch orders to prevent front-running, and that design was later implemented inside of the Aragon Black fundraising system. And, and actually, a really similar design has now been implemented inside of the Cosmos bonding curve module that's coming from IXO and been built by developers at Simply VC, which I'm really excited about. And uh, the, the work is still on the 37 release of the SDK, but they're going to be updating it to uh, 39 and 40 soon. Uh, so I'm really excited to, to see that coming out and being usable in a very like generalizable way, because I think that's some of the most exciting tech that is there there is to offer inside the blockchain space, these automated market makers. Yeah, I agree. But so uh, judging from what you're saying, sounds like a little bit of a DeFi, DeFi person. We had a, a good discussion with Ethan, whether it's DeFi or DeFi, we had a good laugh about it. But um, is DeFi a big fat scam bubble or is that the new economical world order in your opinion? When we're talking about blockchains, we're talking really about programming languages that have money built in as a primitive, right? And obviously this lends itself to financial software. And so if we're talking about decentralized finance as you know, financial software that uses blockchains, like this is definitely going to be a part of the landscape. It, you may even say that it's by definition going to be everything, whether it wants to be called DeFi or not. You know, a, a video game that has you know, NFTs you might say by definition is decentralized finance. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'm like a, a cheerleader for the term or like so much predicting that the moon is going to come from, from DeFi or something like that. But I, I think that DeFi in one form or another is definitely here to stay. It's a very rational way to think about it. So, you know, I like their explanation that we have beauty in blockchain. It can be maybe a kind of technology or some other things. Uh, so do you think that kind of art or beauty of blockchain itself is something that can push the blockchain technology to a real world and attract more and more people to deal with it? I think there's a couple different ways that art interacts with blockchains. And I think that each of them are, are interesting in, in different ways. The way that I think I'm most interested in it is sort of from a perspective of like a history of art and technology. There's sort of like a tradition 
in, in fine arts of an interrogation of technology and a misuse and a reuse. And it's, it's sort of begun, I think, I mean, some might say that it begins with painting itself and, and also sort of like camera obscuras uh, that have been used in, in sort of historical painting for realism. But I would say that actually like the, the photograph is, is probably where mostly this timeline gets kind of exciting. And the idea of like artists use of photography, photography as a medium, and the sort of conceptual framework of like, you know, looking at the medium itself, uh, instead of like the photo that comes from a camera, what is the, the stuff itself that makes a camera? What does it mean to have reproducibility? And so there's, you know, a very long and rich history of, of artists using photography without necessarily being photographers. Uh, and this sort of continued into moving image with film, especially 16 millimeter film in the 60s and 70s, uh, conceptual artists, uh, constructionism and, and uh, sort of like Marshall McLuhan, you know, like the medium is the message. What does it mean to be using these materials? And, and it actually extended even to the, the 90s and 2000s and beyond for Internet art, you know, a, a sort of like, what does it mean to have this material? Uh, what does plasticity mean? How does this change what it means to be human? How does this change what it means to be an artist when you have these new capabilities? Can I turn this material inside out and sort of like examine it by making an artwork that really dissects it or something like that? You know, this was, this was a big part of my education in school is sort of like media theory and examining how is technology used as a mirror and also a tool inside of like an artistic practice. And I feel like blockchain is especially exciting in that tradition. It has so many conceptual frameworks that can modify or, or change the way we think about society or the world. Uh, it's also still at such a like early period that we haven't seen whether or not those sort of predictions are true. Uh, it's so much of a theoretical framework at this point in many ways that it's, it's really like rich for artistic interrogation, you know, proof of concepts or, or pieces that use it or talk about it even that sort of like can elicit those sorts of exciting thoughts. There's also, I would say, like the other use of it, which is a bit more like if we're looking at the camera again, it's not trying to think about photography itself, but it's actually just looking at the photograph that was taken. Um, and that's maybe a bit more like the sort of NFT art world that you're seeing with blockchain as well. You know, it's just a, it's a new medium that people are excited about, you know, just using itself instead of being too conceptual about it. And then there's also the actual infrastructure you could maybe say this is the DeFi version of it, which is what happens to the art world as, a, as an industry when you can have sort of hyper-financialization on a super micro, macro scale, switching between them. You know, like when you can now have uh, an artwork, which is millions of dollars, but it can be shared or owned by thousands of people. You know, how do you crowdfund, you know, masterpieces? Like what is the role of a museum if you actually now have the ability to still fund artworks which are just as expensive or just as important but don't need the level of top-down coordination. You know, what, how does it change when you have decentralized autonomous sort of public taste building into this system instead? And, and there's been some really interesting projects sort of trying to think about that. And then there's also like very commercial projects trying to think about that as well that we've seen. It's interesting that you describe it that way because if I'm not mistaken, I really can't, I was trying to remember the name while you were speaking, but I really can't. But I'm sure that the first camera well, the first prototype of the camera, well, and maybe you can correct me on that, was invented by the son of the scientist who said the sentence, a sky full of ghosts, and he was the first person to realize that the stars aren't actually what we see, that it's the light and so on and so forth. 
and then his son invented the camera like 20 or 30 years later and the first product and that was really interesting how he was combining as well like science and art in the same frame uh, but i really can't remember the name we can't just move on that's beautiful <laughs> we can't just move away from that idea sorry <laughs> I know that a lot of uh, things, it was like a combination of science and art. And for example, Edison, as far as I remember, he was the person who discovered that a two machine or someone who was in fact the scientist is more about technology than of body art. But he just think that, okay, we need some something to make this easier, process easier. So in any process, we have a dreamers who move forward the industry, the technology can be dreamers in kind of art or in field of technology at the same time. Totally. I think that's actually sort of what's most important when you think about like what does it mean to be an artist as well and and something that I've definitely like had on my mind a lot lately where I'm I'm not spending my time making art but it's really sort of what does it mean to sort of like pursue your intrinsic valuable activities you know and like for me a lot of it is sort of like making or used to be I mean still is in some ways making objects or exploring ideas that are just extremely interesting to me but maybe they don't have an application to them. You know what I mean? I think that you can look at a lot of art that way. I think that you could say a lot of blockchain technology actually is that as well, where people are just pursuing these ideas because they're extremely interesting. And, and a lot of them really don't know how they could be applied or how they would be applied. And I think blockchain gets criticized for that a lot. But you know, that's really probably one of the characteristics that make me so excited about the space. Yeah, and one more characteristic that I personally like that a lot of people can share that ideas and even invest money in that ideas and it's like something that works itself not need to go to some investors who need to understand how it works it's just the people around you who can share your inspiration and move forward absolutely i mean that's open source in general it's it's so inspiring to like not have such a scarcity mindset with your ideas or your work or your output and and having such like low barriers to collaboration it's super exciting this is actually the point I think I was more or less gonna make about the NFT tokens that you were saying that a lot of people and I personally think it's a brilliant metaphor or analogy, whatever you prefer, that NFT tokens are essentially DNA on the blockchain. So I don't know if that makes any sense, but your, your work with NFT tokens a lot, so does it? <laughs> um, I mean, if you are talking about NFTs as sort of like building blocks that can be potentially compounding into, into like new configurations or just the idea that you're publishing in a format that doesn't have, you know, restrictions about exactly how those, those things can be used and reused. Yeah, like that's absolutely uh, a great way to describe it. Okay, so moving a little bit onwards, talking about, I recently saw Tessa awarding you on Twitter with the worst uh, hashing metaphor about the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> you can't undo a chicken nugget. <laughs> Now, talking to you, the question is, where does cryptography come in with all your work? I mean, are you also a cryptographer? Do you also like research in that field or no? Or is that why the metaphor was bad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can even claim authorship of that metaphor. I, I'm not sure where I first heard that, but it's definitely been said before me. But I do think it's one of the better grotesque visualizations for a, a trapdoor hash function. 
I am very excited about cryptography. I don't think that I have, you know, very much to contribute to the field of cryptographic research beyond maybe demonstrating applications. You know, like I think blockchain is exciting, but it's if you really like sort of drill down into what we're all excited about, it's cryptography, where the name cryptocurrency comes from, of course. You know, none of this would be possible without really sort of groundbreaking developments in encryption and cryptography. Things don't necessarily have to be distributed on a shared ledger to be exciting. Like there's already sort of just the idea of putting public key cryptography into people's hands opens up so many sort of really exciting ideas around self-sovereign identity and improvements on security in general. I always often look to Estonia's e-residency program as sort of, you know, something that that is should get more hype than it even does. I mean, not that it doesn't get a lot of hype, but just the idea that every citizen has access to this capabilities that there's so many cool things you can do with it that don't require a blockchain. Uh, blockchain can can augment a lot of them in really interesting ways, but just being able to sort of control those forms of identity or encryption and then what that opens up is something that definitely keeps me engaged in the space. I once spent about a few good hours anyway, so I was going to say about six hours, but I think that's a lie, uh, with Adam Buck and Oleg Ganza, that's the guy who's doing slingshots for Stella. After that conversation, uh, it was like a three-man conversation, and they gave me a good cryptography lesson. And after I came out, uh, Oleg said, uh, you know, Serge, now you know 95% more than any cryptographer knows, so don't worry about cryptography. Going back to the ICF, I want to go back to the ICF a little before I ask a couple of questions about Clover Network. It's a bit of a controversial question and it's your choice to, to answer that or no. Would you say that the grant process, uh, the decision making, is a decentralized decision making or is it a centralized decision making? So there's the grants and funding program at the ICF, which you know I mentioned has been around for a while, but the ICF itself has changed many times throughout its life cycle and or its lifetime, and the grants program has as well. There was a lot of work uh, last year sort of designing ways to improve the current funding program. And like I said, a lot of this year for me has actually been implementing a lot of that. So for the first time, we have created a new group of external experts who are not part of the ICF, they're not part of All in Bits, that are people who have experience in the ecosystem, expertise, technical, community-based, product-based, and we've we've invited them to be part of the, the grants process. So I think that's definitely a really exciting step in, I don't know if I want to call it decentralization, but sort of a, a more accountable system that has a, a much greater depth of perspective, which I think is important to sort of bring a high quality program around. We're retentively calling this group the Technical Advisory Board. And while we've started working with them, it still hasn't been ratified into our bylaws. Until then, uh, we refer to them as external experts, which is what we've we've done for our funding program from the beginning. You know, if, if an application comes in and it has to do with whatever it is, ZK Snarks or something, or uh, something that we don't have somebody immediately available to do a technical evaluation of, you know, we reach out to an external expert and ask for, for help evaluating uh, the merit of the funding proposal. So this is a bit like that. Currently, the system now has basically four stages. The grants at the lowest level are administered by what are called grant entities, and that's informal and interchange GmbH. They basically take the applications, they review them, 
I think we try to get at least two evaluations per application, and then they make a preliminary sort of decision with, in accordance with like the board of management to say, okay, I think that this is maybe a good thing to continue and try to fund. That uh, eventually goes directly to the board of management who sort of goes through all of these recommendations and decides, okay, like, is this going to fit within our quarterly budget? And does it make sense for the goals that we're trying to do right now? Whether or not it's, I mean, there's, there's plenty of applications I think that come in that are really high quality, but for one reason or another, we can't proceed. Then the board of management takes this group of recommendations, gives them to the technical advisory board, and that's when they're able to review them as well and add comments. And, and this is, in some ways, you know, the goal is like, oh, you're working in a validator in Southeast Asia, you know, I bet you have perspective on the validator community there better than we would from over here in Europe. And, you know, here's this tool that's supposed to be useful for validators. Like, do you, are you already using something like this? Is there something already available there that we just weren't avail- like aware of? Can you inform us if this really is a good idea to proceed? So that's been really great. And then those comments are included in the proposal to the Foundation Council, who then does a final review and then ratifies the, the budget itself and then we can proceed and making service agreements with all the different groups. Of course, this is not a decentralized process. You know, decentralization means it should be public from the get-go, all the materials should be public. And I think that there's a real case for many types of funding proposals to, to fit that. I think there's also a case for many types of funding proposals to not fit that. Often the information that's submitted includes proprietary information, stuff like what do you pay your developers? You know, who are your clients? How are you funded? And things like that. And if that information were public all the time, it would be at a disadvantage for the, the companies who are making those proposals. You know, like um, if you were to see, oh, your developers only paid this much, I might be able to poach them because of this. Or, oh, I see that you have a, a rate of this much and your client is this person. I can go to that same client and lowball you and maybe I can steal your client. There is sort of a, a level of privacy and competition within developer groups especially that that needs to be preserved in some sort of funding scenarios. That being said, there's a lot of room for fully transparent systems. We've seen it especially in like uh, Aragon's funding system is 100% public and then with stuff like the Kasuma on-chain proposal system, you know, it's it's definitely an exciting opportunity and of course we have it ourselves inside the Cosmos uh, community pool. We haven't had you know, too many things go through that because there's, there is sort of like some red tape around using the governance module on the hub. And something that we're making a priority, especially in the next quarter, is trying to fund research and development, which will improve that process. You know, I'd really, really like to see more stuff coming directly from the hub, especially stuff that benefits directly the hub. You know, the ICF is a bit concerned with this sort of overarching internet of blockchains idea, especially the way IBC can factor into this, whereas there's definitely like a case to be made for things which are directly relative to the hub and don't matter to anybody else, maybe things which are directly about atom accrual. I mean, the ICF is obviously interested in the success of the atom. You know, our our treasury composes largely of the atom. Uh, But I think there's also the ability for sort of really, really direct iteration. And also there's some things that the ICF just can't fund at all. We are extremely conservative. We don't want to uh, show up on any sort of problematic radars and and get investigated for anything that could possibly be accused of us. You know, we so we try to be extremely conservative and make sure that we do everything by the book, uh, which means that we often you know don't uh, fund things which could look like certain types of merchant services or or things that like might show up on a governmental radar that says, oh, I need to make sure that this is like happening completely legally. You know, we'll just maybe steer clear completely, and maybe the hub itself would 
actually like to engage in those things. Maybe the hub itself wants to be a DEX one day or something like that. And that's where you know the ICF starts getting a little bit wary about funding things. But the hub itself, if it was being self-funded through the community pool, might be able to, to do things that we can't do. And so really excited about sort of extending the capabilities in the hub. And I think at that point, you know, you'll see truly decentralized funding systems. So I take it as Silk Road 2.0 is not on the funding list now. <laughs> no, it's not. So mentioned before that you have a very clear uh, view on the process of funding and how it should be related to each other. So just one question regarding conservative way of um, ICF. So do you have any transaction between fiat money and let's say blockchain money, or you just focus on fiat money and don't want to do with all this transition? Our, I don't know if you call it an endowment, our, our balance is definitely composed of cryptocurrencies and fiat, and uh, depending on the service agreement, and also depending on what the request is from the, the person making application, we'll work with fiat or we'll pay in Bitcoin. I think we try, we have something like a percentage that we try to keep on fiat and a percentage that we try to keep in each of the different cryptocurrencies. So depending on how the market moves, we may move between different currencies or if we have more Bitcoin than we planned on having in comparison to our fiat, we might ask if somebody would be willing to accept Bitcoin as payment. We're pretty flexible on that. We have, I think Michael's done a great job of sort of creating nice frameworks for us to work within. But no, I mean, we definitely work with cryptocurrencies uh, all the time. So you're a kind of fund manager as well, yeah? That's much more Michael. Yeah, he does a great job of that. I guess you don't do the whole flash loan thing, you know, send it to a balancer and then send it. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, so what about Clover? Do you plan to integrate it with Cosmos? Because it's Ethereum-based, right? So far, so for now, right? Do you plan any integrations with Tendermint or Cosmos SDK? I would love to rebuild Clovers uh, in the SDK. It, it's more of a question of time. You know, my, my goal with Clovers was mostly to to get something that was working and live and stable. So all of the token economics, all the design around it was this like balance between trying to create sort of an incentive engine to sort of entice people to come in. You know, the inflationary token came with like payouts to sort of encourage certain behavior. But there was always the, the goal that there should be sort of counter pressure on that so that it wasn't just, you know, running out of money in the first week. So there's sort of this balance that Clover's reached around the price of gas on Ethereum. So if the price of gas is low, it's profitable to mine on Clover's. Uh, and if the price of gas is high, it becomes unprofitable. Uh, I think there's still a really exciting way of playing on Clover's, even when the gas is high. So I mentioned before that it was sort of like, Uh, I was trying to create a system that incentivized people who weren't even, who didn't care about it as art and really didn't care about it as game to interact with it. And that's the sort of like a selfish miner user. And the selfish miner should really only care about it when the gas price is low. But uh, the result of a selfish miner is that they sort of, in in mining, they they sort of accidentally generate all of this Detritus, which which becomes possibly really interesting material to engage with as like a game or as somebody who's interested in it visually or in a sort of secondary market capacity. And that secondary market capacity or sort of artistic user still has like a very viable reason to play with it even when the gas price is high. Because they're not just trying to, you know, make five cents every five minutes or something like that. They're like excited when they find like a really interesting looking clover or they're interested in like a longer term market thing where it's like, oh, like I found this 
really exciting, super rare, and I think very valuable clover, but the chances of finding a buyer for it, you know, I'm in it for the long haul. I might have to wait for a while until somebody else also realizes how valuable this thing is. And so it's, I think in a lot of ways achieved that, which I'm really proud of and excited. I mean, there's obviously a lot of limitations to interacting with it just for the fact that it's a blockchain. You know, you still need Ether to even run a transaction on it. And, you know, we did some work on some, some scaling efforts around that to really take advantage of some of the benefits of like POA network that have been stalled, fortunately. There are some updates to Clovers which are actually on GitHub and just need me to do a final code review and like merge the PR because it's not just me working on it. You know, there's a few others, although they also have other jobs and things like that. So it's like, it's been tough to like not give it the attention that it needs, knowing that there's still a lot of exciting things that I can do with it right now. And one of those things is, yeah, you know, say rebuilding it uh, on a Cosmos zone where you have complete control over the, the gas and things like that, which would, you know, do a whole lot for, I think, lowering the barrier of entry to the whole project. At the same time, you know, it's, it's still in my head a bit of an artwork and it is a bit of a obtuse, strange bird. If I were to, say, build a game that I just wanted to be an addictive, really fun game, I probably would not have built Clovers. Like Clovers has a very strange shape that makes parts of it very hard to swallow, but I think that's also, for me, what makes it interesting and the sort of like blurry line into art. You know, art's not necessarily the, the easiest thing to swallow all the time, or at, at that point, you know, it maybe becomes pop culture or something like that, which is also really exciting. But I definitely wasn't trying to build Clovers as like a, a pop culture thing, and I, I probably would have done quite a few things differently if I were. It does sound like there is a lot of game theory there. And I can totally relate to the scarcity thing. I've been into the blockchain space for, for, for a while, and I like what people call shitcoins or altcoins or whatever. And at one point, a friend, he told me, oh yeah, this is because you've been collecting coins for the past 30 years in real life, so now you're collecting just the shitcoins, you know? So he's just like, but uh, well, I, I'm, I'm not actually kidding. It is actually true, but <laughs> going back to um, blockchain, what is the part in blockchain technology that currently excites you the most? And let's, let's leave it Cosmos unrelated because that's a bit uh, unfair. Sometimes I get more excited about the sort of like high level conceptual thing about like, oh my God, yeah, like look at this crazy new coordination tool that I can use to sort of like, I don't know, I, I'm a sucker for like starting new endeavors all the time. You know, I have working groups with my friends, you know, we have half finished papers or half finished books together, you know, whatever. It's many sort of like opportunities for coordination that I always get really excited about. And I think that there's obvious sort of alignment with what becomes possible in blockchain and these coordination tools. And then there's a very sort of practical thing that I would maybe say I'm more excited about. And that's getting these tools to the level of usability that it feels the same level of empowerment that I felt when I built like my first Ruby on Rails app or the same level of empowerment that I felt when I built my first like uh, React or Vue.js app. Oh my God, like I thought that I was able to just sort of tweak some things here and there with code, but actually like I can build a full-fledged app. Like I have the power to make this thing that in some ways previously I just thought was sort of in a black box in my computer. Obviously somebody smarter than me was building this. The moment that you realize you actually can do it yourself is such a great feeling. And that feeling in general is sort of our only saving grace in the dystopic future of you know, the big four computers, a big scary black box. Like you don't know what's happening in there and so you don't have the empowerment of being part of it or like this, this right to repair. You know what I mean? As soon as we like really lose the ability 
to shape the tools that we're using all day, we're going to be completely subjected to those tools and have no control in there. You know, we'll, we'll be absolutely under the domain of scary big brother or something like that. And so the more often that I can imagine like instilling that feeling of being capable with technology, I think that's truly exciting. And I'm starting to really see that with these development kits. You're starting to really get around the, the really crazy sharp edges that we've, we've been dealing with for years in this space and just sort of laying out the user story for building an app that doesn't have to be 100% decentralized and like World War III proof from day one. This is a requirement that I think we all want to instill in every single thing that we're building, but is really not necessary in every situation. And I know it's also like not the most blockchain-friendly perspective. I'm just excited about building apps that have scarcity as a primitive and let the security of those apps be proportional to the value and the use of them. Clovers is a super exciting and funny thing, but it doesn't need the same level of security as DAI. Doesn't need, it's not like a, a world currency that like people's life is going to depend on that has to be uncensorable or something like that. So why should users of Clovers be paying 71 guay per transaction? It doesn't have the same requirements. And when you start building with this idea of an internet of blockchains, whether you're building it with a Cosmos SDK or you're building it with Substrate or you're building it with you know, a fork of Geth, it doesn't really matter. The idea is that you're able to sort of have you know, the capabilities that you require match uh, your use. And I think that opens up the door to much more developer activity, much more empowerment in building applications without having to go through this World War III decentralization requirement before even having a seat at the table. Do you feel that currently people and users, at least in maybe not generally in blockchain, but in the cosmos space, are a community where people, I mean, we called ourselves like Citizen Cosmos, and it's, that's for a reason, right? Do you currently, as a member of the community of Cosmos, feel like you're a Cosmos citizen? Do you feel that thing of decentralization that you can decide and so on and so forth? Or is that something more of um, somewhere there? You know, we still need some time to get there where people will be deciding as a decentralized entity on all their decisions and... Or is it just not even that, not the first and not the, the second thing? Is it just some sort of statement which we will never get to? Will we ever live in a world where people can say, okay, I'm not a citizen of Germany, I'm not a citizen of the United States, I'm not a citizen of Russia, I'm a citizen of, of Cosmos, I decide, my DAO decides the best things in the world, uh, there is a, this, the financial vehicle inside of it, that I can get passive income or whatever. Does that make any sense in that direction? Yeah, I think one of the qualities that I appreciate the most being used to describe decentralized tech, cosmos, whatever, is, is anti-fragile. And I think that sometimes anti-fragile comes from friction. So the idea that there are, say, like state borders, you know, that you have different languages in different countries, that you have different laws in different countries, like that can be really frustrating because whatever, my SIM card doesn't work here anymore, or like, oh, I have to change money, or, oh, I have no idea what the hell this person is saying. You know, whereas if there was sort of some universalism or like, I can't be held down by these corporal strands, you know, I'm a citizen of the world, actually. There are some sort of benefits to being anti-fragile in that scenario, because if we all sort of had 
one universal citizenship, say, to Cosmos, but like Cosmos broke, then the whole world would break down or something like that. There's alternative of that, which is these areas of friction. I think, though, that there is a really exciting version of that, which is plurality. You know, if I am not just a citizen of the United States or I'm not just, you know, a citizen of Germany, but I actually have many different types of citizenship to many different areas of interest or groups of common fellows, whether we're like politically aligned or commercially aligned or, you know, familially aligned or whatever, you know, like I think that the plurality of those also creates a sense of anti-fragility because if one of those groups that you're a part of fails in some way, not all of your eggs are in one basket. It's another reason why I've always sort of liked Cosmos ecosystem as well is because it sort of banks on this plurality of many different chains, many different reasons, many different types of users for, for many different capacities. You know, there's sure, like make your completely permissioned private blockchain, you know, that's great, do that, but make sure that it still can talk to my fully decentralized system over here that has this very specific purpose. There's no sort of necessarily maximalism either. You know, maximalism is effective because you have 100% conviction because if you're not right about this, then you lose it all. You know what I mean? When you put all of your money, all of your hopes into a single sort of vertical, you will get fanatical about making sure that that succeeds. And that can be really effective. There's nothing more effective than somebody with real conviction. But sometimes that conviction is, is based solely on irrational thought and fear of losing something instead of you know very real and rational evaluation of what the actual conditions of your scenario are. I've always really sort of appreciated that level of assessment and, and embrace of many different reasons for many different things that especially Cosmos has brought. And so in that way, I mean, it also depends on what you mean when you say a citizen of Cosmos. There's the Cosmos hub itself, which is a token that somebody could potentially be like a solely focused maximalist on. But I think that at a higher level, it's this internet of blockchain idea. And, and that I, I very much consider myself, you know, mentally a subscriber to or citizen of. That was kind of the thing I wanted to hear. <laughs> we have to be a little bit of devil's advocate, right? You understand that we want to sometimes get information out of you. Before we jump to um, our traditional question, there is one question we left out, which I have to ask. The not okay with me Twitter account. Did it did it lock its... Is that an alter ego that escaped and locked itself so people like hosts, uh, podcast hosts don't snoop on you? Or, or because there was some very cool things there and now it's locked. So, you know, what happened to that? <laughs> If you scroll down far enough on my Billy Rennekamp Twitter, I used to use it quite often for pretty idiotic things, like uh, just really speaking to myself in a very like non-productive way. But that was also sort of what I felt was best about Twitter, especially. You know, there's this sort of like, Twitter is composed in some ways of all these different, almost like professions or specialist interests. But there's also one of those specialist interests is weird Twitter, which if you ever want like a great weird history lesson, look for like the history of weird Twitter. And I feel like that was like my primary use of Twitter. I mean, it was that and just personal community, a bit art world. Art world doesn't really use Twitter though. And so weird Twitter was where it was at. And weird Twitter was basically like comedy, but also absurdity. And, and I think probably that's how I was like interested in using Twitter mostly. And as I got more involved in blockchain space and technology world, you know, I, I started using it more to like keep tabs on progress on things and update people on progress. And so like, At some point, it really just, there was a conflict in the way I was using Twitter. And so I made like an alt account and I went back and forth between making it private and public and sort of just started 
slowly following, you know, the people that I used to really interact with on Twitter. And it became like the place for me to like dump my dumbest ideas. And yeah, I wasn't really sure how precious to be with it. I, I kept switching it from public to private and I'll probably switch it to public many more times. It's, it's not like permanently closed by any means. I kind of like the idea of it just opening and closing randomly or something. But the idea is that it also should be sort of a safe space for me to be saying dumb stuff and a safe space for me to like tweet things that I don't care if anybody likes. I think there's this weird sort of social media condition that people get too absorbed in where it's like, oh, if, if I didn't get a response on it, it wasn't valid or I shouldn't use this or I'm doing it wrong or something. And so like the not okay with me is a place where I can have very low bar of dumping out thoughts on the internet. I can relate to that a lot. My alter ego escapes like quite often. So <laughs> I play Pokemon <laughs> with it. A traditional question that we have for, for all the guests is uh, what are three blockchain projects that you like right now? They have to be outside of Cosmos. It can't be Ethereum itself. And you can't say Bitcoin or Ethereum. It doesn't work like this. <laughs> Gnosis in general is a project that has always been really close to my heart and the way that they work in such sort of high technical integrity and with such a sort of vision towards a real sort of sustainable product. Uh, they recently launched Omen, uh, which I'm excited to see, or I guess the DX DAO launched it. Their timeline is always sort of so slow moving, but so consistent as well that I, I constantly am like re-excited. And, and even within Gnosis itself, actually the, the Gnosis Safe, I think is one of the most exciting projects. You know, it really brings a, a massive amount to the table for improving the user experience, just recoverable accounts, daily limits, just the things that you should expect from using an application. In the same way, Argent has been able to bring those features even more front and center to like a, a very slick user experience. But I think what's really, you know, core underneath both of those is level of technical integrity that you see a bit more so in, in the Gnosis Safe. I'm really excited to see what's coming out of Curve Labs, a group who recently formed in order to sort of do research and experiments around bonding curves and automated market makers. I'm not sure if they're still planning on it, but they might be doing something around avatars, which I know Kia Krutler has is, is also been sort of doing a bit of research on and ongoing sort of work below her work at, at Gnosis and Strategy that I'm excited to see. This sort of blurs the line with stuff like Lil Michaela from that company, Brud. You know, I think that there's a lot of very fertile territory around decentralized avatars and collective identity, collective ownership of personas. And Forte, who's a, a blockchain gaming company that I had some calls with a bit last year that I think are, are really doing a good job to approach building in uh, real game economies without preventing real sort of game development from taking place as well. Cool. I have to check out Forte because I'm not very familiar. I'm familiar with the others, of course. But <laughs> so is there something we didn't ask you that you want to add? Be prepared for Stargate, everybody. Public service announcement. <laughs> car selling a car, yeah. <laughs> Cheap. <laughs> I'm a Volkswagen 2008. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. And yeah, it's been really a pleasure talking to you. And um, really great to see that we have uh, a lot of profound thinkers behind the project. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, uh, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Bye.